Today's guest on the A-Game podcast is Kevin Allison. Kevin Allison is best known for his role as a writer and actor in the sketch comedy show The State on MTV, which, again, is one of my favorites. We had uh, Kim Rieno on yesterday or earlier this week. Uh, Kevin is also the host of The Risk Show. It's a podcast that people go on and air out all kinds of crazy stories and it's actually an insanely popular show that they have regular people and celebrities on. It uh, gets over a million downloads an episode, so you can find him on that. He's also been a writer for Blue Man Group. He's been a writer for Jib Jab. Um, he's an author. They have a, a wrist show book coming out. He has taught uh, sketch comedy. He has taught improv in New York City. Uh, he's been around the business for a very long time. He's got a great story. He's a very unique guy, and he was very fun to interview. Also, he's part of the Zoom of the State reunion that was just done with the reunion of the state cast. If you go on nicknicknick.com slash links, you can get the link to a t-shirt that was made by the guy who plays Doug, Michael Showalter. It's a limited time only shirt that comes with a uh, early audio and video recording of the Zoom of the State reunion and all the proceeds go to charity. As well as on that site, www.nicknicknick.com, you can click on... Funding for your real estate deals, and you can work with Nationwide Business Capital Group. Marianne has been an excellent source for myself and for some of the investors I work with on getting deals done, especially some of the creative deals when other people are saying no, if you need some stated income stuff, if you have some some weird things you have to get around. The more creative a deal, the better they come in handy for. Uh, They can do a lot of the stuff from single family to residential to commercial. Uh, Loan-to-values are great there. Terms are pretty great. They can help you out a lot of different ways, so please go on that site and click on the Nationwide Business Capital Group, and Marianne can help you with all of your real estate funding needs, as well as Naked Warrior CBD. So Naked Warrior CBD is a great anti-inflammatory thing for me. I've been taking it. It's been helping with my sleep, with my stress, with my appetite. My whole body just feels so much better, and I've been taking it for months and months and months now. They have gummies. They have drops. You can get a 20% off discount with code AGAME. It is a Navy SEAL-owned company. So check that out at nicknicknick.com slash links. Under affiliates, you will see the Zoom of the State, the Nationwide Business Capital Group link, as well as the Naked Warrior Recovery CBD. Enjoy Kevin Allison. I'd like to get your feedback. If you need to contact me for any reason, podcast at nicknicknick.com. It's going to be a great month. We've got a lot of great guests coming on, so please keep me in the loop on your thoughts, and thank you for listening. Welcome to the A-Game Podcast with Nick LaMagna, digging into the minds and experiences of some of today's brightest entrepreneurs in real estate and business, along with Hollywood stars, UFC fighters, and your favorite rock bands, people that have figured out how to overcome obstacles, take chances, live boldly, and no matter what they do, they always bring their A-Game. Okay, I'm very excited. My guest today on the A-Game podcast is the one, the only, Kevin Allison. Kevin Allison is one of the original cast members of MTV's The State, which is one of my life-changing favorite shows forever. He is the host of the Risk podcast, which is extremely successful. They have the Risk book coming out now. You've done improv. You've been on Reno 911 Miami. You've done writing for the Blue Man Group. You've been writing for Jib Jab, which I, is a fun app I'd like to hear more about. And you are splitting your time today. I have been a fan for a very long time, and I, I really appreciate you giving me some of your time today. So thank you very much for allowing me to interview and pick your brain a little bit. Oh, thank you so much. It's great to be here. <laughs> 
You have, uh, you have really great energy. Obviously, there's a lot of different things I want to touch on. We were just talking a little bit prior to, uh, to starting the recording about just having a conversation and getting to know people who do amazing things like you're doing about not necessarily what they do, but was how my partners give me the words in there. And the more I started listening to you and some of your backstories and some of the other podcasts you've been on and listening to The Risk Show, I, I think you're such an interesting case because you, you've been around a very long time and you've you've done things that I see people starting to do by doing podcasts and putting themselves out there, but you did it before there was all the social media out there when your whole life was on display up until now. And I, I'm very interested to see the way that you've seen the world change the things you've been doing and how you've been able to adapt because you're still very successful all these years later. And um, I, I just, that doesn't happen by accident to the people that I, I've talked to is it comes from having really good mental strength and having that good self-talk and staying persistent and tenacious. And that's really what my A-game podcast is all about is finding people that have the same hard work and discipline to achieve their dreams and just do something different. And, you know, in your line of work, being a comedy and, and show business and all things, it is way more cutthroat than even the real estate realm that I am in. So I would love to hear a little bit about your story, but obviously I would love to start out with the state, which is how I first was introduced to you. And that was, um, I believe, 93, 94. So how did, the, how did the state come about? How did you find that and become part of that group initially? Well, I'll tell you, I went to New York University. I was born and raised in Cincinnati, Ohio. And, you know, my family was not very wealthy. So it was a real struggle to like, get the money together, get all the scholarships and loans and all that kind of thing for me to get to NYU. And in my freshman, I went there for film school, I thought I was going to become a film director. I'll never forget, Spike Lee, talked to us on the first day, uh, you know, roundabout orientation, right? And so, I don't know, there's I, maybe, I don't know, a thousand. I, I don't know how many kids were there, but he was, he was talking to all the film students. And he said something along the lines of, look, you came here to this school and you know it's one of the best schools in the country for filmmaking. And you probably think it's all about the equipment and the faculty and the connections through the school to, you know, being able to get licenses to do certain things, you know, uh, or the film that they might give you. But no, the best thing that you have here in this school is sitting in the seats around you. The most important thing you're going to get out of NYU are the friendships you make with other creatives here at the school. So keep that in mind, keep meeting people, keep working with people. He's like, I still work with people today, Spike Lee was saying, uh, that I met at NYU when I went to film school here. And God damn it, if that didn't turn out to be so rock solid, he was so right. Because what happened was um, I was in a film class uh, in freshman year it was just, uh, everyone was making these little, it was actually super eight. We were like, this is like 1989. So we're making actual film with super eight, which like pretty much doesn't exist anymore. And Joe Latrulio, he said at one point, hey, I'm in this brand new comedy group and I'm inviting everyone in class. If you want to come tonight, we're doing this show. So 
it was called the new group. The, the state was originally called the new group when, when the state was at NYU. And I went to see that very first show that the group did on like the seventh floor of the School of the Arts at NYU. And I'll tell you, that night changed my life because that show was so filled with energy. There was just such uh, like an impressive vibe to that whole evening. What struck me about it was that we in the audience felt like we were laughing at something that was already a classic. Like people in the audience were reacting almost as if, oh, we already know this stuff, but it was the group's first show, you know, which made no sense. But it was, there was just something that was so palpable about the creative energy of that group. And listen, in the very beginning of college, I was very shy. I'm the kind of person who has to come out of the closet about all my weirdnesses over uh, <laughs> over over time with people you know what i mean so when i first came to nyu i was like oh my god i'm just this kid from ohio i'm really shy but i knew i had a lot of weirdnesses and creativity inside so i remember i said to this kid who sat next to me at the show whatever it takes i'm going to get into that comedy group and he looked at me and he was like you? Because <laughs> all he knew me as was the shy guy at that point. But God damn it, if, if I didn't live up to that, because what I did was I started, I took track of all the kids in that group, the, the, all the members of the state. And I just started like trying to find out what classes they were taking through word of mouth. Oh, so-and-so has taken this class and getting into their classes so that I would continue to just like be around them socially. And it was in sophomore year, I got into a class called Sight and Sound and Joe Latrulio was on my film crew and Michael Jan and Ken Webb, who was a member of uh, the state or the new group at that time, and I might be forgetting another person. But anyway, we were, we were a little crew, a film crew, that were going to be making movies all throughout sophomore year of NYU. And afterwards, they would hang out with the rest of the state at this place called The Dugout, which sold like beers for a dollar. And one night, we were there, and I decided, I've got to do something crazy. I've got to come out of the closet with some of my weirdness for these members of this group, the state, to show them, I don't know, that, that I'm a unique person, you know, get their attention. <laughs> so I went, so, and of course I was very drunk. We were all very drunk and stoned throughout all of college <laughs> and all of being on MTV. But anyway, I went into the bathroom. I went into the bathroom and there was like, two inches of water on the floor of the bathroom and it was yellowish, like, like the, the toilet must have overflowed. So I decided I'll take off all my clothes except for my Doc Martens because I didn't want to get water all over my feet. <laughs> and I walked through that bar. This was in the East Village. It was like a punk rock kind of bar. And I raised a mug of beer and I was singing a wailing song that I was, that I was improvising. I, I was singing, oh, standing in an inch of urine, well becomes the sailing man. And everyone in the bar was like, what on earth is going on here? You know, I mean, I could have been arrested. I was <laughs> nude, you know. But I'll, I'll never forget, I, I went right back into the bathroom, put my clothes back on, and then sat down back at the table with the rest of the state. And Carrie Kenny said to me, 
you're crazy. You need to hang out with us more often. And so I knew I was like, ah, mission accomplished. They like me now. And so I quickly after that became the um, sound guy for the group. I I became the guy who ran all the sound cues for their shows. And then I was like, okay, so now I got to be at their rehearsals. And now I can start saying to them, hey, guys, I wrote a little sketch here. What do you think? You know, like, like, so I, I, I was very calculatedly uh, trying to win them over over time. And then it was in junior year that Michael Black, the whole group was walking around Washington Square Park. And Michael Black, for some reason, was the guy whose job it was to tell someone they were fired or hired from the group. I don't know why <laughs> that was. But he pulled me aside and I was like, oh, my God. Oh my God, everyone else is walking behind us and Michael's pulling me aside. What's about to happen? And sure enough, he was like, we want to invite you to be in the group. So that's how I got in. And, you know, it was such an an, an incredible chemistry between those 11 people um, that we really cherished it. We really knew that there was a certain energy, a certain creative energy that was kind of invaluable. Years later, I would teach sketch comedy classes. Um, I did that for years at a place called the People's Improv Theater here in New York. And I would always tell people, listen, if you form a sketch comedy group, remember, it's a creative unit. So you might think, oh, I'm a much better writer than so-and-so, so maybe so-and-so isn't so valuable. Well, don't think too fast about that because listen, if you have good energy, if, if, if you're in a creative group and you put out something and you're like, holy crap, that really worked beautifully, there might be very subtle ways that some of the members who you know, aren't as strong at acting or aren't as strong at whatever might be great at reacting, might be great at like just pitching in ideas occasionally or helping people stay organized or whatever it is. When you work with a group and you realize, oh, we did something great there, there really might be something to the, the group psychology where every member was somehow in some little way important to it. That's amazing. And it's, it's interesting. You said you, you went out there and you did something crazy and that's what dragged you into the group. And they said, this guy's one of ours. And oh, my, my jujitsu teacher, Matt Serra, he always says, water finds its own level. And I guess in your case, urine finds its own level. <laughs> you went out with the boots on and you guys found each other. So it, it was a match made in heaven. But man, that, that really, it, you paint such a great picture of like the typical college bars. You know, I, I went upstate to, uh, to Albany and every time I came home on the weekends, we would go to those downtown bars, man. And I could literally picture all the things you were saying, minus the naked guy walking around. I didn't see that every day, but that's an incredible story, man. And uh, I, I'm so happy you guys did it. Uh, I, I know you guys just did the reunion, but people, I, I feel like every six months I'm quoting the state and somebody goes, what are you talking about? And I go, wait a minute, you, you don't know what I'm talking about? And then I have to go back and be like, I'm going to start sending you episodes. And um, have you found over the years that it's, it's, it's still taken on a life of its own, that people still everywhere, it, it just seems to be the show that never got forgotten. And, and to this day, it still holds up so well. I'll pop on um, pop it on, on Amazon now since um, I'm able to do that. But right. I'll just burn through like all of the seasons and it's still just as funny. And me and my friends will start shooting each other texts. Remember this one? Remember this one? And the sketches that I haven't seen in years when they pop on, I still remember every line and it's still just as funny. That I think is such a rare thing to find. Like a lot of the things I went that I thought were really funny or goofy, 
when I was younger, I just don't have the same sense of humor, but I feel like the state does not follow that rule. It's still just as freaking funny today as it was then, if not more. What do you attribute that to? Well, we were super, super conscious of what made us laugh. We were huge fans of Monty Python, and we recognized that there were big differences between Monty Python and a lot of sketch comedy. Like, you know, otherwise the sketch comedy that was most available to everyone was uh, Saturday Night Live. And we knew, okay, the deal with SNL is it's corporate comedy. There's lots of producers, there's tons of money. And back in the day, the writers uh, were very separate from the actors. And there was very much the idea that a corporation was putting people together to do stuff. Whereas with Monty Python and with the state, we were all very good friends for years before ever ha doing something on TV. Uh, so we were very mindful that, oh yeah, we don't wanna do sketches that are too topical, that are too much about what's happening right now because we want them to last. And we don't want to like fall too easily into the common tropes of what corporations think will make people laugh. We wanna stay very true to what makes the 11 of us laugh because we recognized that there was something very special about that. That it's a, a lot of comedians, a lot of the best comedians recognize, oh, you might be afraid that what, that what you have to offer is not as relatable, uh, is not as immediately recognizable as, uh, you know, this is, like a lot of people make the mistake of, okay, what is everyone else doing? Can I do that as also? And what seems to focus group the best? No, the state was always about, no, 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 no. What makes us laugh? And we'll just keep doing it until people start getting it as if they're also members of the state. I, I think that's a great point that I didn't think of is you watch it and you really feel like you're, you're part of that. You know, it's, it's funny, you know, I even, I, I was just, I just had uh, David Faustino from Married with Children on and we were talking about that, that it's, you know, you don't know me. I, I, I sent you a message. You were so nice to, to write back and offer to do this, but I'm sure you get messages like that all the time from people that I could be some weirdo. I mean, I, I probably am, but at the same time, you know, you're talking to somebody that feels like they know you. Like I've been watching you for 20 years, you know? So I'm like, ah, it's, it's my friend, Kevin. And that's, that probably is weird sometimes, but I guess that really, like I, until you just said it, I didn't think about it. That's attributed to what you're putting out there and making people feel like they're part of that. And it really brings me back to a really great, happy time in my life with just me and my friend, just, you know, goofing off and get, getting trashed and watching the state and just, going out and drinking in parking lots and quoting things and yelling all the stuff. And it, it, yeah. it's an awesome memory, man. You guys were an iconic stage in, in our lives. And again, I, I still watch it all the time to bring me back to that state. It brings me a lot of joy. So thank you. Well, I think we learned a lot from each other as well. I think we were always learning from one another because when the state was together, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of comedy education, uh, you know, starting, uh, in the especially late 90s and early 2000s, comedy education exploded with UCB and the Pit and the Magnet in New York, a Second City in Chicago, uh, all those you know improv schools and all. But in New York, when the state was you know founded, uh, there really wasn't comedy education. 
so there wasn't like a formula for us to follow. And there weren't, you know, like rules and principles and guidelines that we were following. We were really just going off of feeling it out and seeing what we thought was funny and trying to stick to that. And, you know, I'll, I'll never forget how David Wayne was hugely um, influential to me in the group because he, when, the, when, when we got to MTV, David would pitch like two or three sketches every day. He was just always writing sketches. And the group was just like brutal, just would not take his sketches, but he never stopped. He just kept bringing in. And, and the reason was he had such a weird, um, whatever, but a weird way of, 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 of putting things in his sketches. They were always like from another planet. I loved them. I always loved David's sketches. Um, and, and our sketches had a real similarity, which is why like a sketch like Taco Man, uh, written by David and myself and, and Mike Black, like has a real, you can hear all of us in it. But anyway, um, uh, I was just so impressed that it was about roundabout, oh, I don't know, halfway through our time at MTV that the group started to be like, all right. Let's start, let, like we started to really warm up and be like, okay, we're worn down. David's stuff really is funny. Let's start doing some of these sketches. And if you look at David's work today, you know, like Children's Hospital or Wet Hot American Summer, the, that still has that very, very, very David Wayne sensibility in it. And, uh, and it's because he never gave up. That's awesome. You know, backtracking to before you even did that, you, you mentioned you, you grew up in Cincinnati mm -hmm. and then you went out to NYU to be in film and wound up being in sketch comedy. What was the initial reaction? Have support at home? Did you have support from friends and family when you said, hey, I'm, I'm going to go to New York City and become a film guy? What was the reaction? Were people kind of like, ah, you know, you're, you're wasting your time, you're chasing, you know, was there support there? Did people believe in you or did you just kind of say, screw it and go out to yourself? And then what was the reaction when you said, hey, I'm not doing film, I'm actually going to be in a sketch comedy group? Because, you know, in the, the early 90s, being a kid going out there, I can just picture me saying it to my mom. And my, I mean, she was good. I can picture them being like, you're nuts, get that out of your system and not thinking anything was going to come of it, let alone like, the amazing success that it's had and continues to have. Well, I'll tell you, for me, it... I've always recognized that a huge, huge, huge part of what made me who I am was the fact that I knew I was gay when I was a little, little, little kid. Like I recognized like as like at the beginning of consciousness, I was like, oh, I knew I was attracted to other boys and I knew that that was considered uh, horrible and disgusting. And, you know, I grew up in the 70s in a very, very Republican uh, town, a very, very Catholic, very Roman Catholic. And so uh, I listened to what other kids were saying about gay and fag, this and that and the other. And so I, I grew up kind of terrified, like, oh my God, there's something inside me that people think is weird and terrible that I got to keep hidden. And so I developed a defense mechanism of being funny. 
because when I, and it started with kindergarten. I, on the first day of kindergarten, I was terrified that people were going to find out I was gay. I mean, which is, when you think about it, that's insane. You know, that, that a, a kindergartner is like, oh my God, they're going to find out I'm gay. But I was that precocious as a kid. Um, and the first day of kindergarten, I made this girl laugh, who was a total stranger to me. And I was like, oh man. That's the key. People will eventually find out I'm weird and they'll eventually probably laugh at me. But if I can be funny, I can control why they're laughing at me. <laughs> I, I can win them over and let them know, yeah, 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 there's weirdness inside of me. But uh, you're going to like my weirdness, you know, I'll, I'll win you over. And so it turned me into a class clown as a kid. And then throughout grade school and high school, I started doing the musicals, you know, that were, uh, uh, I became a theater kid. And so my parents, thankfully, even though they were pretty conservative in a lot of ways, they were very, very, very Catholic. They did recognize, oh, this kid's very creative. And he's very passionate about his creativity. Uh, let's just support him and just like keep patting him on the back and let him do what he wants to do. So I'm super, super grateful that my parents were like that. Um, so they sent me off to NYU. And indeed, it's so funny you say that because freshman year, I had to take Cinematography 101. You know, I'm like, I'm going to be a director. And <laughs> Cinematography 101, I was like, oh, shit, I am not cut out for working with a camera. I am not cut out for directing a whole cast of people. Like, I realized right away, oh, man, directing is not going to be my strength. Uh, so, but fortunately, NYU had enough classes in writing and acting that were also available to film students that I basically just made my, my major writing and acting without actually switching it. You know what I mean? Um, and, and my parents, they seemed to understand that they were like, okay, what, you know, do, do what you think you got to do. And it's very, 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 very funny because the first show I had a role in for the state was, oh, I don't know. I don't know if it was my junior or senior year at school, or maybe I had even just graduated. I can't remember exactly, but it was my very first appearance in a state's show. Uh, and my parents happened to be visiting New York City that weekend. So I had been talking to them for a couple of years now. I'm in this group. They're so creative. They're so amazing. And my parents were excited. They were like, oh, good. He's met people. He's working with people. <laughs> um, but my appearance in the first show was going to be naked. <laughs> <laughs> Singing a ridiculous song, just like I had been when, the, you know, I, at that bar that day. And so I told my parents, oh man, I am so disappointed to tell you, I don't think you should come to this show because it's just not ready for prime time. This is more of like a dress rehearsal. So you guys really shouldn't come. It's just not up to snuff. I'd be embarrassed for you to see it. And I think they suspected, oh man, there's probably some shit going down in this show that he just doesn't want us to see. But they were like, okay, we'll go to see, see something on Broadway instead. <laughs> That's hysterical. That's awesome. 
So, you know, what, what is that like being a performer? I, I didn't realize, um, you know, actually I, I grew up, um, I used to hang out with Amy Schumer when I was younger uh-huh. and she stayed in touch with a couple of other, for other friends, but a couple of my friends that um, I, I've just known forever wind up taking a year to just do stand up at Caroline's. And we went to go see them and like all of our friends and all of their parents that were like our, all my elementary school friends, parents that we grew up in that were like the PTA ladies, they all came. So we're all sitting there with all of our parents that we've known since we were babies. And then he gets on stage and he's talking about, you know, pissing on girls and all this stuff. And I'm like, like, how is he doing it in front of them? Like, is that a weird thing to be able to hold that type of humor, those types of skits and then look out and know your friends and family are watching that, you know? It's extremely challenging. And so many artists, like this is a, an issue that has plagued artists for years. You know, like Mozart had a terrible time with his father. John Lennon had a terrible time with his aunt who raised him. Artists are very, very used to, oh, fuck, what is my mother going to say about this? <laughs> and indeed, when the state was on MTV, there was going to be there was a new episode every week and every week i would get a call from my mom who was beside herself she was always distraught about you know like for example louis and the last supper um oh my god how could you do that about jesus anytime there was a a, a sex joke basically sex jokes mostly you know uh she was just so upset and she got at one point she got uh, some of our aunts some of our aunts and uncles to write me letters saying you've got to tell the group to stop doing this kind of joke and that kind of joke so yeah they were it, it was always a battle with my parent my dad was usually like didn't he was like whatever you know what i mean but my mom was always upset about the content and um, oh, when I came when I came out of the closet with the the Jew, the Italian, and the redhead gay, oh man! <laughs> I mean, I had come out of the closet to my parents when I was eighteen, right before I went to NYU. I waited until the plane tickets were bought and you know, like school was secured. So I was like, all right, now I'm definitely going to New York, and now I can let them know I'm gay and leave. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but no, when, when we did the Jew, the Italian, and the Redhead Gay, it got written up in Out Magazine and the Advocate Magazine. So now I was out, you know, uh, publicly. And again, my mother was so upset. She just thought that I should keep that hidden. And I don't know what to tell people about that. It, 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 although I will say this. Now I create this podcast called Risk, and Risk is really about the exact same thing that I had struggled with my entire life. It is about coming out. People come on Risk, and they tell true stories that they never thought they'd dare to share in public. So people will come on, and they'll talk about their heroin addiction, or this terrible car accident where they accidentally killed someone, or, you know very fun very funny stories stories about kinky sex or stories about um uh 
uh, you know, crazy drug trips, you know? It's basically people just opening up about the wildest or most emotional or more, or the kinds of stories people would share with their therapist, but might be a little shy <laughs> about sharing in mixed company, right? Um, and that's, it, it comes from me having grown up gay and feeling like I was always hiding something and then eventually coming to feel like, no, no, I'm a really nice guy. I shouldn't have to hide anything. I should just casually, like the Jew, the Italian, and the redhead gay. The, Jew, the way we did the Jew, the Italian, and the redhead gay was just very casually admitting who we were. You know what? <laughs> Um, so yeah, so so I knew when I created Risk that my parents just, especially my mom, was just not going to be able to handle this podcast because some really X-rated stuff happens on the podcast or some really disturbing stuff sometimes, murder and stuff like that. Um, so I've just, I just told the folks, look, uh, you don't want to hear the podcast. I can bring to you guys recordings every now and then of stories that I think you're going to like. And actually, we're just about to premiere a new podcast, which is going to be all the stories from Risk that you can play for your parents or that you can <laughs> play with kids in the, in the car. Because over the years, we've been doing it for 10 and a half years. And there are a lot of stories that are like, okay, actually, you could play that one with the kids listening in the car. Uh, so yeah, the new one, the new podcast is going to be called Real, uh, and but the same idea, just true stories that are very, very honest. Um, but yeah, when when the state book came out, what was it called? Uh, the Union of the State is it's a book that is like an oral history of of the state. All eleven members are interviewed, and it's really fun. It contains lots of stories about how we created the state. I told my parents. You cannot buy this book. <laughs> and when the Risk book came out, I told them, you cannot buy this book either. <laughs> and thankfully, they've been good about that. I think after a certain point in my life, you know, once I hit my 40s, I think they just got to the point where they were like, okay, he's in his 40s. We can't really control what he's putting out to the world anymore. So we'll just watch or listen to whatever he brings to us, but not seek it out. And that's worked out great. <laughs> that's really, that's really, really cool. And all those sketches you mentioned are absolute classics. You know, Taco Mel, The Last Supper with Louie. I didn't know. So the Judy Italian, The Redhead Gate was actually when you came out. That was, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, well, you know what happened was there was a day, it was at the end of the day, like on a Friday where the state was exhausted and it was during a writing period. You know, it, before we would go into production, we would spend like maybe a whole month of just coming into the office to write and then pitch pitching each other. And so that can get pretty mentally exhausting after a while, just constantly trying to think up funny stuff and then pitching it. And it's especially draining when you pitch something that you're really excited about. And then the group is like, meh, you know, like, like that can be really frustrating. So it was at the end of one of those weeks and it's Friday and everyone just wants to go out and get drunk or whatever. But David said, Hey, Kevin, me and Ken, the three of us have never written a sketch together. And we were like, okay, yeah, you're right. The three of us have never written something together. He's like, there's a new office that opened up down the hall. It's empty. Let's just lock ourselves in that office and not let ourselves out 
you know, not let ourselves go drinking with everyone else until we've come up with one or two sketches. So we went in there and I think the first thing we did was where's the mousy? <laughs> which, which is a completely, totally ridiculous sketch. Um, and then we were having the hardest time of thinking of another sketch. And so finally, either David or Ken said, okay, what's a sketch that only the three of us could do? And I said, the Jew, the Italian, and the redhead gay? And we all laughed and we were like, yeah, 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 let's just do a, a sketch that's about <laughs> stereotypes and only us could play those roles. So we wrote the Jew, the Italian, and the redhead gay. And I knew that as I was pitching that, I was like, okay, this will be how everyone finds out. <laughs> that's an awesome way to do it though. How many people can say that? You know, I did it on a, a famous sketch, sketch on national television. That's incredible. So my, my follow-up to that is, um, strangely enough, um, I harassed Ken Marino on Twitter when he was bored and he was like, I'm just bored. I'd like to people. And I was like, call me, call me, call me. And he did. It was so weird. I picked up a block number and he was like, hi, it's Ken Marino. And I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> it's funny. That is but, um, so funny. Yeah, he was great. And uh, he's actually going to do the podcast, which is cool. But he bought, we, we were talking about that sketch. And my question for him, which is my same question for you, was the stuff that you were doing then, do you think you would still be able to do it today? Would it be more offensive? Would it be less offensive? I mean, it's everything that's going on. And he kind of laughed at me. And I, and I was like, such a great sketch. I was just watching it. And I was like, I wonder if you could do that today. And he was like, you could still do it today. And it'd still be damn funny. <laughs> yeah you know it's really hard because oftentimes you know as the writer of a of a comedy bit you know that it's commentary but you can never be totally sure that people are gonna get it you know that like for example louie was us making fun of SNL style characters that are all about a catchphrase, right? Like uh, MTV was pressuring us. You've got to come up with recurring characters and you've got to have catchphrases. And we were very resistant to that. We were like rolling our eyes. We thought that that was just dumb. Um, and then we, we created a sketch, you know, and now Louis, the guy who walks in the room and repeats his catchphrase over and over again. And Lo and behold, it's so funny. We're making fun of catchphrases, but at the same time, people still love the fucking thing <laughs> <laughs> for the very reason that people love catchphrases. So it's like we kind of won on both sides with that one. With the Jew, the Italian, and the redhead gay, we were, just, we were making fun of the fact that in sitcoms often, People have no, the characters often have almost nothing more to them than some, than some designation of whatever identity group they are. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like, like this, it's the Italian guy. So he's gotta be cooking the pasta, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it, like, I don't know if people so much got that from, from that sketch. And, and I don't know if we did it to, today, if they would uh, as well. It's really interesting. Like when we were preparing the reunion, the thing that we did on Zoom, um, there were a couple of sketches where we thought, oh, wait, that might not go over so well today. Or a couple of lines where we thought, oh, that might not go over so well today. 
so you do always have to be very conscious of you conscious of the consciousness of the world that you're currently living in. Um, it's really interesting. Like I'll hear comedians complain about feeling like they have to walk on eggshells sometimes with some issues, but creativity can with creativity, you can still be funny in all kinds of ways, regardless of, you know, like, I think that a lot of the consciousness raising that has come about in the past, oh, I don't know, 10 years or so, um, around being more respectful or mindful of this identity group or that, that issue, um, is ultimately kind of evolution, is ultimately kind of people realizing, oh, wait, it's kind of hurtful if we use words like fag or whatever. You know what I mean? Um, so you evolve and then you just use your creativity to, to be funny in different ways. And, and I think that um, sometimes when people complain about that too much, it feels a little bit like, uh, well, wait, why are you so anxious to be offending people? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'll tell you, risk is definitely that way. Risk because people speak in such an unfiltered way on risk. You know, they're talking about crazy stuff they did on drugs or crazy sexual situations they were in, that, that sort of thing. And so it can be very, very uncensored. And so there will be people that get offended about things. And oftentimes... I'll really be mindful. I'll, I'll listen to the complaints and I'll respond, you know, like, oh, you know, um, we, we, we don't want to censor that person for this or that reason. But then other times people will complain and I'll listen back to the story and think, oh, yeah, I can see how that could be really harmful to some people. And, and I'm OK with cutting it out or, or changing it, you know. So it's a case by case basis. And. I always want the ultimate effect of risk to be emotionally intelligent and compassionate toward all, you know? I think that that's great. It's, it's interesting to me too, that you're coming up in a time of social media where I feel like there's that fine line of some people just want to hide behind it and they want to do everything they can to not put themselves out there. You found a way to come up with a completely different angle and getting do that and obviously it's been a huge hit i think it's like a million downloads an episode or even more than that probably now, but very successful which is i think interesting because it probably taps on something that everybody has that everybody's scared of their their skeletons in their closet or little dirty dark secrets of being exposed like you know i i, I always quote ray longo is my uh, my kickboxing trainer is he says you know the everybody has insecurities and there's different things that bring them out of different people and he always goes you know nothing's show up more than when you're getting ready for a fight and you're exposed in front of all these people, but you're doing it on such a bigger stage on such a national level. Like, and I, and I think about, you know, somebody like me, it's like, all right, I'm going to go fight in front of 150 people, but the only people that are there are the people that are going to see nobody knows who I am. When you do something like that on a podcast, that's going to go out to millions and millions of people. I can't imagine the anxiety and the like, Oh my God, what, you know, should I not be saying this stuff? How did you, did you know that that was going to be such huge popular thing and do you have trouble getting people to come on to share those because of that 
Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the idea first occurred to me because of Michael Ian Black from the state. Uh, in 2009, uh, I was doing a one-man show. Uh, it was five crazy, kooky characters. And, you know, you, I would go from doing what it was kind of like Andy Kaufman, you know, kind of stuff. And it was very funny and people liked it, but it wasn't a hit. You know what I mean? It didn't like, I wasn't getting big audiences and it, it was falling flat in some ways. It wasn't totally connecting. And Michael came to see it when I did it in San Francisco. I did it at San Francisco sketch fest and it really kind of blew that night. It didn't, it, it, the show was not good that night. And afterwards, I was walking outside of the Eureka Theater, right outside of where I had done the show, and just taking a stroll with Michael. And he said to me, you know what? Your life is so crazy. You know, because I'm also a very kinky guy. I have all sorts of sex, sex adventures and all that kind of thing. And he said, your life is so colorful and crazy. I think people would be more interested if you just got up on stage and told your own true stories from your life instead of being these characters on stage. And I said, oh, man, that sounds too risky. And he said, well, good. <laughs> he said, like, if it feels risky, then it's probably going to interest people. So I decided, okay. I flew back to New York City the next day. And on the plane ride, I was like, all right, I'm going to take his advice. I'm going to try telling the riskiest true story I can think of at some show and see how that feels. So I contacted a friend. I knew she had a storytelling show. And I didn't know anything about true storytelling at that time. I had never seen The Moth, which is the most popular of all the storytelling shows. And I wasn't really exposed to like This American Life or anything like that. So I was kind of riding blind here. But I was like, I'll tell the riskiest story I can think of at this woman's show at the UCB Theater. And it was about the first time I prostituted myself, which is the state before we got picked up by MTV. MTV spent like six months contractually making us not work anywhere else but not letting us know whether or not we were hired Aww. so we started to starve you know like there's a lot of that kind of stuff in the entertainment industry right sure. um so i prostituted myself a friend gave me the uh the uh, all the training <laughs> For, for how to be a male hustler. And it was, a, it was a total disaster. It was a comedy of errors. It was a ridiculous uh, weekend of me trying to make this work. And I was not cut out for that line of work. So I told this story at this woman's storytelling show at UCB Theater. And I was terrified. I was like, this feels so risky to be talking about because it gets pretty explicit. And it's about prostituting myself. <laughs> But I'll tell you, the audience loved it. Like every time I felt like, oh, this is so embarrassing. What am I doing? This feels too risky. They just kept leaning in further and being like, oh my God, he's really telling the truth here. <laughs> and so I walked away from the UCB theater that night so excited because I felt like, man, something really clicked when I did that that night. And the whole idea for risk occurred to me. I was like, I've got to create a show where people talk about stuff 
that's happened to them in their real lives, but that they're afraid to talk about in public. Uh, and it's interesting because the idea really clicked with people right away. Fortunately, I had a lot of famous friends or acquaintances, uh, you know, like Margaret Cho and Sarah Silverman and Michael Ian Blatt, the various members of the state, Janine Garofalo. All those folks did the show very early on and they all loved the idea. So it kind of helped the show really get off on, get off on its feet. But to be honest with you, the bread and butter of risk is not famous people. It's ordinary people who contact us from all around the world being like, oh, I want to tell a story on your show. Because ordinary people have lived through all kinds of crazy experiences. And so over the years, we've learned how to teach people, how to workshop with people so that they've, they've worked on the story with us a lot so that they finally feel comfortable once it's going out to the world. You know, they've, they've been mindful. Okay. I don't want to say this, but I will say this, that kind of thing. And um, yeah, it's been very rewarding work because we get emails every day from people saying, man, this show changed my life. It really like Oh, made me more compassionate, made me more empathetic, made me feel like I'm not such a freak and made me feel like, oh my gosh, maybe I should be in a different line of work or whatever it is. People have all sorts of insights and illuminations that come from listening to the show. And so that's just been a thrill, the fact that it's worked so well that way. I, I think it's amazing that you have, and that's that's where I I really love just art and expression and and the things like that, that everything that somebody says is crazy is literally what somebody else has been waiting their whole life. <laughs> and you have something like that, you know, and somebody might look at it and be like, Oh, he's got the show and people are saying all this crazy stuff or these perverted stories. But you know, some of those things that people hold on the inside literally torture them for, for decades. And they, they feel like they're, I mean, it literally creates physical illness and all kinds of things. So, you know, you're doing it for entertainment and then it turns into something that, like you said, can change people's lives. Some of those stories, people, probably were just waiting for a, an outlet or an excuse to get that off their chest. And I cannot imagine the relief of some of those stories just finally being told when they get to now say, it's out, I got it out, and then go about their lives. And I imagine things like that have to make everything better, their personal lives, their professional lives, their health, just, you know, it's, I really feel like it's, it's therapy, you know? It, it really is at the same time that it is still so entertaining. But I'll tell you something, a lot of people do appear on the show, but go by a fake name. So that, but, and that is, they still get a therapeutic effect out of it by going by a fake name. And we always tell people to change the name of everyone else in their story. You know what I mean? Like, so that someone doesn't end up being like, you know, freaked out. Wait, you talk told about what I did in your story? You know, there is an amazing, for anyone who loves the state, there's an episode of Risk called Remembering the State. And every single member of the state tells a story on that episode. There are some members of the state who have like go to risk, like, you know, a duck to water, like Ben Garant loves doing risk. And he has a million <laughs> insane stories because Ben's done a lot of drugs. <laughs> He and also also Ben has had a lot of encounters with like paranormal activity for some oh, wow. reason I don't know so he's told some absolutely crazy stories on the show but then there are other people like like Marino for example who's like look I've got I've got kids <laughs> and I, 
I'm up, I'm afraid of what I might say on your show. <laughs> yeah. That's really cool. You know, uh, there was a couple of things I heard you say on a few other podcasts too that I thought translated very well into to what a lot of the listeners on this are dealing with as far as working with teams, working with people and you know, even things that you like as far as, you know, again, I, I have friends that are in bands. And even if it's three or four people, they're traveling on a bus for months with the same four people. And one guy is thinking he's the lead singer and the other guy is mad at him because the other one's getting more attention. And just trying to balance out all those egos and those personalities with a small group like that. I'm very impressed that you guys were able to control all of those personalities and make it work the way you did with 11 loud, hysterical, creative personalities like you did. How did you make that work? I'm, I'm sure it wasn't as easy and smooth as it turned out to be on TV, but even the things like you were saying, when you, you get all excited and you have a sketch and then you bring it to everybody and then they kind of shit on it or they won't take it and then you have to deal with that and like kind of just pick yourself up and then do another one the next day. And you're every day and every joke and every sketch risking putting yourself out there and having somebody tell you something that you put your heart and soul and humor into sucks. And I feel like with any business, whether it's trying to be a pro athlete, like we were talking about before we started recording or in real estate, I put out a bunch of offers on property. Everybody tells me, no, you're never going to get a deal accepted, but you have to just keep going and going and going until the next day. Um, so I guess it's a two part question. One is how did you guys work around all those personalities and keep everything on track and smooth and going towards the same goal. And how did you keep yourself positive knowing that, you know, okay, maybe you got three or four or five things shot down, but the next one's going to get accepted or, or the next one they're going to be on board with. Cause I'm sure that's not easy. Oh my gosh. That was the biggest, that was the hardest thing about the state is that there were 11 of us. So that meant that everyone was kind of in competition for uh, screen time. And the, the, the rule of the group was that if you wrote the sketch, then you got to cast the sketch. So it was inevitable that the people with the greatest facility for writing, the people who could write and, you know, like uh, Tom Lennon, Ben Grant, um, uh, Mike Black, uh, uh, were, were able to write a lot of sketches. And so some people like me, I'm... I'm weird. I have a like, like I would pitch stuff that the group would find hilarious, but then say, yeah, but we can't put that on television. Do you know what I mean? Like, like uh, it was a similar thing happened on your show of shows with uh, Mel Brooks when he was in the room with Neil Simon and Woody Allen and Carl Reiner and all those guys. They used to find Mel Brooks's uh, sketch is hilarious, but they would always say, but we can't put that on TV. Um, so, so, I, and also I was way too much of a perfectionist and I was way too anxious about collaborating. Like, you know, that example I just gave of the Jew, the Italian and the redhead gay and, and where's the mousy and taco man. Those are all sketches that I wrote with other people but I didn't do enough of that. I should have done a lot more of get off your butt and go out there and improvise with these people. I had a weirdness about improvisation, which is I, I highly encourage improv classes for almost anyone, no matter what your career is or what you're doing, because improv classes 
teach you that you can fail and fail and fail and fail and fail, and it still doesn't matter. Like you, you can make a joke that lands on it that's embarrassingly bad, and then you can make another joke that's embarrassingly bad. But if you don't let that upset you too much, eventually you'll tell a joke that brings the house down. And you, if you just strengthen that muscle of being okay with failing, being okay with embarrassing yourself, um, and, and being, that's ah, not the end of the world, right? Then you, you have more and more and more opportunities to actually succeed, right? If, if you don't quit, but you get used to failing and, and it not meaning so much to you, right? Um, so I, another thing I noticed is that it wasn't only the group that you had to impress with a sketch. Uh, once the group was like, yeah, we like that, you know, like, okay, now we're all behind the Jew, the Italian, and the redhead. Yeah. Then you had to pitch it to the, the MTV executives who were not, you know, this, they were nowhere near as savvy about humor as we, the group, were. So then we had to have these meetings where we would peach, pitch it to these suits, you know, and hope that they found it funny, too. And very often they did not like my sketches. The, the suits found my stuff even weirder than the group did. And here's the thing I noticed, I wish I had learned this. I think Tom and Ben were the best at this. Tom and Ben would pitch sketches and then the suits would be like, well, we like that sketch, but we think you should change it to a duck and not a cow. And, and then it would be like, they would be like, oh my God, I can't believe that. They don't get the joke. That actually ruins the sketch. So if they would have done something like that to me, I would have gotten, oh, all bent out of shape and depressed and upset for a few days. But Ben and Tom were always like, we're going to have a cigarette, then we're going to come back and we're going to find a way to make this sketch work with it as a duck instead of a cow. <laughs> <laughs> like they always saw it as okay that's upsetting they don't get it but we're going to come back to the drawing board and somehow find a creative way to make it work so they were kind of relentless about always like bouncing you know picking themselves back up after they were rejected so it's a very valuable lesson to learn there too man i think you just summarized everything that i want this podcast to be about. I almost changed the name to Failing Forward because the, the way the A-game came out, it was a little hard to find when you search for it, but it's exactly that, you know? And um, I, I've seen, you know, the motivational posters that say literally success is dealing with rejection without losing enthusiasm. And I think yeah. that back what you said is, how do you keep doing it? And okay, no, that's all right. And not let it just get you down. Or again, if you're going to let it get, be upset for the day and then just get right back on the horse tomorrow, because that's where things come from. And that's literally the only thing I've seen between people that are successful at this stage in my life, after it's been years and years and years is my friends that turned out to be UFC champions or really like badass real estate investors or musicians or comedians. They just didn't quit. They took the yeah. same ass whoopings. They took the same but else did, but one person went, I can't deal with this rejection. I'm just going to go do something that's less scary and gave up on their dream versus right. the kind of stuff that you're doing. And that's, that's just the thing that I love and I respect more than anything is the ability to keep doing that. Because like you said, we were talking about it before. Everybody sees the wins. They see the highlight reels. They don't see all the things that it takes and all the sketches that didn't go through that, you know, like, like us. That's why I like this, this business is 
I see real estate guys post every day. Oh, I just got this big check. It's like, yeah, but how long did that actually take? How many times did that deal fall apart? How many times did the financing not go through? How many people hung up on you and told you to eat shit before you got that one? Yes. But that one yes makes all of those no's you forget about them right away. Oh, absolutely. David Wayne, I had a conversation with him once and he said, you know, it's really interesting to look at the helicopter view of my career in retrospect, because when you're in the midst of your career, it's always, oh my gosh, this, this just failed and this just got rejected and this did okay or whatever. And he's like, it, it, he's over the years I've learned, no, no, you got to step back and look back at the whole big picture because I've gradually been moving forward, even though there's been so many disappointments and rejections along the way. You know, it's the keep at it attitude that makes gradually building a career work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I love that. I think you nailed it on the and I, I want to talk about a few other things while I still have your time, but I just wanted to ask one more thing about the state before we moved on, um, because the, the Zoom with the state reunion was just on, and I, I was part of it, and I thought it was outstanding. I wanted to know, how did that come about? And it looked like the, the money was raised for charity more than exceeded your expectations of what was going to go on. As those bids were going and going and going, I saw a lot of you looking at each other, and then people were coming back from putting their kids to bed. Dude, the pork just went for $6,000. And you'd be like, holy shit, really? Like that, they, when people were just finding stuff and pulling things out of drawers, like, I got this, how much for this? And I think it wound up being like $90,000 or maybe uh -huh. at this point. But yeah. how did that come about after all this time? And that must have felt great. Yeah, I'll tell you, it was so funny because when I, I was not planning on auctioning anything at the auction because I was like, oh, I don't know what I have that people would want. And then when I saw what things were selling for, I was like, holy crap, I've got to run in my bedroom and look under the bed and see what I have. And there's still other stuff under there. We're, we're thinking of doing it again now because everyone's like, oh, oh my God, yeah, surely we've got other stuff if all that stuff went so well. Yeah, so that was really exciting. Someone was joking, you know, it, I was like, holy, sh I, I think a lot of our, our fans are wealthier than I am, at least. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I found the cartoon for Little Brown Dog Food, which was a sketch I wrote that Joe Latrulio did the cartoon art for it. And I still had that cartoon in a, you know, amongst a bunch of other papers in a crate under my bed. And I ran and I found that I was like, oh, I'll bet someone will buy this. And it went for, I think, $3,100. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. So I, I think that it's interesting. I think that the state underestimates the extent to which people do still remember and love what we did. I think that with both the state and the state and risk are the two biggest projects of my career as far as like the things I worked on the longest, the things I was most devoted to and everything, even though I've worked on a lot of things over the years. But those two are the biggies. And in both cases, they have an incredibly passionate cult fan base. You know, it's not huge. Um, like bo in both cases, it could have been a lot bigger. If we had stayed at MTV for another few years and just kept, we could have become really big, I think. Um, and Risk, you know, 
who knows? Like, if we just keep at it and and put out this more family friendly version of the podcast, <laughs> uh, it might become a lot more popular. Like I think it deserves to be. But it is very rewarding to have passionate cult fan bases of people who just really get it, um, because you know you always feel like you have a home. Like coming back to those folks, yeah. That's awesome. You know, the, it's, it's really cool. I mean, maybe it's, it's dating myself, but watching when I put things on and I go, you guys got to watch this state. And they go, that's the guy from that. That's the girl from this. Like there's a whole, like you can trace back some of the biggest movies out there. Some of the funniest people in some of the funniest movies are back to that original cast. I mean, you guys really have had the longevity there. And I think it's amazing. And again, I, I can't tell you how much me and my friends appreciated that all through the year, is there any shot of you guys ever getting back together to do sketches and new stuff? I really hope so. I've always thought that the easiest thing for the group to do as far as television work would go would be an animated series because we wouldn't all have to be in the same city and we wouldn't even have to have similar hours. You know, there are so, like The Simpsons, for example was just people working random hours all over the place and sending in clips and they put it together. Um, you know, then there are stuff like Bob's Burgers where it, it's funny because the, the actors are in the same room and really playing off of each other. But if worse came to worse, the, the state could probably come up with something really funny doing it the Simpsons way, you know? But, uh, you know, Kids in the Hall did a tour um, I don't know. It was a couple of years ago. I went to see them at town hall and went to talk to them backstage afterwards. And it was a lot of fun. And I thought, man, there's no reason we couldn't do something like this. Uh, we could even do a tour with the kids in the hall. That might be hilarious. Um, but yeah, no, I do think at the very least we should do at least like a Netflix special or, or like a limited series, like, you know, like six episodes or something like that. I think we really should. It's just the only thing is, is everyone's got such weird schedules that are hard to match up, basically. But yeah, I, think, yeah. I think most of the members of the group would love to. Yeah, I, I would love it. I, you guys do a live thing. I'm 100% there. I think that would be great. Um, you know, another thing I wanted to ask about was with keeping it positive, especially now putting yourself out there the way that you do on everything from even just your work to your personal life. How do you deal with the, the negativity or you know, not reading the comments or the crappy things people are saying to, to have it not ruin your day? And you know, even like doing this was super uncomfortable for me to start doing a podcast and doing these different things. But I watch like some of my friends that are fighters and they'll be posting, um, you know, oh, here's a picture of me hanging out with my daughter on Father's Day. And they'll be like, I hope you get your ass kicked in your next fight, you bum. And I'm like, <laughs> but it's, it's somebody that would have never taken the risk to do anything. You know, like it's the old man in the arena. You know what I mean? Like, and, and I think about that even just... I don't know how to not let it hurt my feelings and ruin my day. And I have it on this much of a scale compared to, you know, somebody like you. So I'm always interested to hear how you deal with not letting the negativity keep you down and focusing on the positive. Yeah, I, that is a great question. Um, there's an episode of Risk called Try. Uh, it, it, it's pretty early on. It's from like the second or third 
season of or, or year that we were doing risk and i i decided to just come out and be totally honest with the audience about how i had been reading some of the comments on itunes on itunes comments and how they were just devastating me and so it was early on you know i hadn't yet gotten used to the fact that when people are behind laptops you know when people aren't like looking at you face to face, they're going to say things that they would never say to you if they were there in the room with you, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. And yeah, people like to think of other people's creative output as like something that they can give an Amazon review. You know what I mean? As if you're a product and that they can say whatever they want about <laughs> you. And people can be really hurtful. Um, you know, people would... Uh, call me faggot and stuff like that uh, on, on iTunes. Uh, and, but, but it was more, it was more people criticizing like uh, my personality. Like I remember someone said, this guy sounds like a pubescent Rush Limbaugh announcing a monster truck show. <laughs> and I was like, well, that's actually kind of hilarious. You know what I mean? Like you do really have to develop a thick skin and try to avoid looking at, con like on risk, I'll, I always let people know what my email address is. And I'll let people know if you have something constructive to say or, some, or a concern or anything like that, write to me directly, please feel free. And people do, people like, and people can be very, people can sometimes be mean to me when they email me directly. But at least it's more like they, they're acknowledging I'm reaching out to you as a fellow human being to say some things. Whereas just random comments on Twitter or on iTunes or wherever it might be, you gotta realize that you have no idea if that's even a human being or a robot. <laughs> and you, you just kind of like, you have to develop a thick skin and start let, you know, know, know that haters are gonna hate. And that it's an interesting thing about human beings. We're much more prone to point out what we think is bad than we are to pat people on the back for things that we think are good, you know? So it's kind of, you, you have to keep that in mind too. Like JC, the producer of Risk is always telling me, yeah, but don't you see that like 95% of the comments on iTunes are people who absolutely love Risk and love you? And it's like, no, no, as like, uh, yeah, I tend to like zero in on the ones that don't like me, you know what I mean? So yeah, you just have to keep on keeping on. And every now and then, someone will have constructive criticism where I'll be like, holy shit, that is a good idea. We should have some of the short stories be a lot shorter or you know, whatever it might be. Or, oh yeah, we should try to blend music into that kind of story. You know, So every now and then, someone says something that sounds critical, but I'm like, well, that's actually kind of helpful too. So yeah, you really gotta like, take it with a big grain of salt and, you know, check in, check in with, like, one of the biggest things about the success of Risk was me recognizing early on that, for example, I've got, I've got ADHD, I'm a very creative artist kind of person, so I'm not a business-minded person. So early on, I said on the podcast, hey, do you like this show? Are you a business-minded kind of person? Please reach out to me. And that's how JC found me. 
like everyone on the staff of Risk are people who love the show and heard me calling out for help at some point. And so you have to remember that too. You have to remember that a lot of success is not being shy about reaching out to people who have strengths where you have weaknesses and asking for help. I think that that's amazing and full how you started this this morning, this morning, I guess it hasn't been that long, but today, um, you know, you said something, I, I remember for me, I've, I've been part of masterminds and, and things like that. And even, even some of my buddies at like the jujitsu gyms, some of the guys that I've come up with that I've known for years that were just somebody sitting next to me in a room or like a guy I recently did a deal with that we just, we both missed the call for food and I wound up going and just getting a cheesesteak with them. And then we're doing some stuff together. Like you said in the beginning that Spike Lee said, Hey, the people that are around you, like this is the real value here. This is the education. And I don't know if you know who Henzo Gracie is, but Henzo Gracie always says that there, there's more education and networking on the average mat in his school in jujitsu than there is at like Harvard because of just the way everybody comes together. And it's, it's not just about that. It's about the relationships and the strengths and weaknesses. And I've always used the analogy for no matter what you do, it's, it's always going to involve a team and you need a gas and a break. You need strengths and weaknesses. So you could be the best pitcher in baseball, but if you don't have an offense or, you know, there's no way you're going to win a world series. So I love exactly what you said. And, and that's been a big thing that I see there's a lot of turnover because people don't communicate or they don't find the right people because they don't talk about what they want. How have you been able to do that? And have you had a lot of the same core people since you started or have you had to go through and burn through different people to find? Sounds like JC was a keeper right from the beginning, but has all the other people that have been part of making that what it is today been around from the beginning? No, there has been a lot of t testing out a person and then seeing how busy or, or how, how much they got it. There's been a lot of, over the course of time with risk, trying people out and seeing how, how they do, you know what I mean? So the, there are a lot of core team members who have been with us for years. Our episode editor has been with us for years and years. Um, but no, it, 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 it takes a while to like see the extent to which a person gets it and, and then checking in on a regular basis of, are you happy? Are you doing what you like? Do you want to try doing something different, you know, to like make sure you're making the most of everyone's, strengths and weaknesses and desires of what they want to do. Yeah. Yeah. That checking in is another thing that I thought was brilliant that you brought up that as a business owner have, have made the mistake before of, you know, Hey, did you get this job done? Did you do this? Are we on time with this? And sometimes I forget to just stop and say, how are you? Like what's going on in your life? How's everything doing? And you know, when somebody does that to me, and they call me or they ask me something and it's not business related. It's just, Hey, you doing okay? Is your family okay? It's like, wow, you know, that makes me want to do an even better job for you that you bothered to ask about that and have a human moment. Oh. And I know you, you, I think, were the person who put that in place for the state. You said every Monday or whatever, we should all be checking in. I think for anybody listening to this podcast that's trying to work collectively as a team or manage a team, that piece right there I think is such a missed ingredient of just the, the human factor there. So um, talk about why you put that in place and how that, how that helped. And I, if, if you're still doing that with your risk crew too. Well, we do, we do, I 
definitely do it with with members of the team at different moments. Um, but yeah, we instituted that when we were at MTV with the state. I think we would start. I think we would start at ten in the morning, if I remember correctly, when we would start a day at MTV. And at one point, I suggested to the group, "Listen." We spend the whole day joking around with each other and there's a lot of roasting. There's a lot of like, you know, taking each other down a peg and, <laughs> and there's a lot of hurt feelings because of sketches getting rejected and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I said, wouldn't it be good if like every morning we just spent like 20 minutes or maybe a half hour just going around a circle and just everyone saying how they're doing. And it doesn't have to be, like an AA meeting or something like, like it could just be, Oh, the, the funniest thing happened to me last night. I, you know, like it could just be a little story about something that happened in your life, or it could be, Oh, I'm really tripped out right now because my mom has this, she might have cancer or it, you know? So, so it was a real opportunity for everyone to like strengthen our bonds with each other as friends and just, and of course, sometimes check-ins would be about, you really hurt my feelings yesterday. You know, like sometimes we would really, it would become a little bit like an AA meeting or, or whatever it is, you know? Um, but it was very helpful. It was definitely very helpful. Um, I work with the producer of Risk on a daily basis, JC Cassis. We meet on Skype every day. And we just, we just usually do that. We usually have about 20 minutes of just saying how we're doing. Um, but we do that with various members of the team at certain times as well. So, yeah, I do think that that is super helpful to be like, hey, human being to human being, how you doing? I love that. I'm going to implement that a lot more. You reminded me of it when I heard it that I think I might have lost touch with that a little bit. So that's something I'm going to take back with me. Um, you know, I, I wanted to also ask you about the people's improv. So how did you get into doing that? And then um, I, I, when I originally wrote to you, part of the reason I, I found you wanted to is one of my best friends since junior high school is uh, my friend Tom Berg, who is one of the most intelligent people I know and very funny and outrageous. Just always has been a freaking wild. Went to college together, went to high school together. Um, shout out to him. He was supposed to get married July 1st in New York, but because of COVID, they had to put it out. But he, um, he was one of your students at the People's oh. Improv. And he hit me up yeah. and was like, He's like, man, your favorite show. He's like, one of the guys from the show is my teacher at my sketch comedy group. And we do shows every Sunday. And he was the one who had me figuring, um, like, hey, I got, I got to talk to him. So he said to say hello. His name is Tom Berg. I don't know if you remember him, but um, really, really funny. And he was one of the first people that showed me that some of the people that I grew up with, like even the, the Amy Schumers and Tom and Joe Gabriel and a couple other friends I know that do stand-up, they weren't necessarily the people who were always telling jokes, which I assumed comedians are, are on 24 hours a day doing shtick and knocking out punchlines, but they were all some of the smartest people that I ever knew. They were very smart in school, extremely intelligent, very articulate. And that was one of the things that I transferred over that comedians, I, I think, even the ones that are telling fart and dick jokes are extremely, extremely intelligent. And the timing and all those things, I just, I, I'm very impressed with all that, that I, I think people that don't really dig into the nuts and bolts of it understand how much brain power that stuff takes. So um, he had great things to, to say about it. And obviously he linked me up and, and had me touch base with you, but talk a little bit about how you started teaching improv and what lessons or things you've, you've taken from that. Well, you know, I actually gave up 
on the performing arts for about four years. I tried to run away from it. Um, I, after the state broke up in 1996, I had a very, very, very hard time figuring out what I wanted to do next and how to advance in my career. I was trying, I was playing characters on stage. I had, I dealt with a lot of stage fright and I dealt with a lot of social anxiety around other comedians. So I was just in a bad spot, you know, low confidence and having a hard time like figuring out how, like I was doing a lot of survival jobs, you know, like waiting tables and stuff like that. So I was just at a bad spot in life. And finally, a day came where I, I said to my therapist, you know, maybe I should just leave the performing arts behind and get a day job at a, like a book publisher or something like that. So I started working at a book publisher and it, was, it wasn't a good fit. I was trying to do that for about four years of just being an editor, just being a proofreader, you know, and then a woman reached out to me. She said, hey, I heard that you're working at this publishing house. You're Kevin Allison of the state, aren't you? I'm putting together a school for writers. I would be curious if you'd want to teach a sketch comedy writing class. And I'll tell you, teaching a sketch comedy writing and performance class was what woke me up again it, it, you know when I was standing in front of a, a room full of students you know it's I'm standing in front of like 15 or so students and I was I, I really I recognized oh I these kids are really listening to me they laugh at my jokes uh, I'm allowed to be like completely sincere sometimes um, I'm allowed to be you know my absurdist self sometimes. I'm allowed to be honest with them about being kinky. Like it was almost as if I was learning in front of these students how to be who I am now on the risk stage, which is just being myself and, and just trusting that people are gonna be okay with the sincere Kevin, the goofy Kevin, the kinky Kevin, the whatever Kevin. And so that really teaching is what resurrected my career. Um, it's very interesting what they say about how much you can learn from teaching is absolutely true. So in order, in the beginning stages of doing risk, I decided, oh, I should start teaching storytelling, even though I really didn't have any experience in storytelling yet. I kind of learned how to do storytelling by doing risk and by teaching storytelling. Um, it, it's an, in, when you articulate to students, here's how you do this, it, ma it makes you much more conscious and then you start exploring, oh yeah, but you could also do it this way, you know? So as a teacher, you end up learning quite a lot and yeah, Thank God. I, I ran into that lady at another show recently, and the woman who started that school and 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 asked me to be a to teach a, a sketch comedy class. And I said, "You don't know this, but you changed my life. You got me back in the action again." And she was so thrilled to hear that. Yeah, that's really cool. I love to know that. 
Yeah. That's great stuff. Yeah. Um, what, what did you do for, uh, for Jib Jab and for Blue Man Group? I saw that you did some writing for them. And I, if, I think everybody I know at some point has used the Jib Jab app for something, whether it's elves around Christmas or, you know, some crazy thing. But that, that's a fun one. I, I didn't know that you had something to do with that. My Blue Man Group time was very unfortunately timed because it was in 2008, right before the big economic crash. Um, uh, basically, I went to high school with this fella named Mike Quinn, and he was the creative director of Blue Man Group. And he wasn't one of the original three blue men, but he was there, the guy who handled the writing of their shows and all that kind of thing. And he reached out to me because he wanted to create a new blue group, blue man group show. You know, they had been doing the same show for a long time and they were thinking of coming up with an all new one. So the writing is interesting because there's no dialogue. It's all silent comedy, right? You, uh, but I'm very versed in silent comedy because I've always been a huge fan of Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton and uh, Harold Lloyd and all those guys. So my friend Mike was, he was like, I think you'd be good for this. So I came on board and started writing some sketches for them. And then the economic crash happened and they were like, I mean, they were getting rid of like, uh, like they, they fired a ton of people. So I was like, well, I'm surely going to be fired because I was just hired. <laughs> um, and then Jib Jab was funny too, because that's when I was working as the artistic director at the People's Improv Theater. I started, you know, once I started teaching, I started really moving up in education around comedy and became the artistic director of the pit. And I don't know, I think someone there just said, hey, are there any writers that you could recommend here on your, uh, in your school? And I was like, well, yeah, me for one. <laughs> <laughs> so I wrote, um, oh, I don't know, maybe 10 or so sketches for them as well. And I still get residuals for that. There were these you know, ridiculous little cartoons where uh, it, I think they were body parts i think like here's your colon talking to you or you know it was it was very kind of obscene ridiculous little cartoons but but that was fun for sure that's really cool awesome well you've been more than generous with your time um i'll do now what i usually call the victory lap which is the last few questions on on our way out but my uh, my first question for you is what is your favorite all-time sketch from the state I would probably say that it's Taco Man um, because <laughs> I just have such a an affinity for that sketch. I'm so proud that my sensibility really shone through that sketch. And it was the kind of sketch that I would write often uh, among the group. Uh, I, I, I often had a hard time figuring out how to end sketches or how to like, make a sketch, make the weirdness of a sketch like amount to something else, you know? Um, so it was great that Taco Man had that typical Kevin Allison weirdness in it, but that everyone kind of loved how it resolved. <laughs> it's, it's a great interaction. And I loved watching uh, Michael Black kind of start laughing his ass off during the live one in the middle of it. He had to kind of cover his face. Yeah, that was really, that was one of the funniest moments of the Zoom <laughs> when he cracked up for sure. Yeah, that was really a cool one. Uh, my next question is, 
what is the worst job you've ever had before you became the successful gentleman you are today? Um, well, one would be prostituting myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, God damn. You know, I think that probably takes it out of everybody. That's in <laughs> but honestly, like there were some catering gigs that were really miserable, you know, like some like really uh, low paying uh, catering gigs that were really weird. I'm sure I, I, I really should try to assess all the jobs I've done. Like I used to load boxes onto a truck at Jurgen's factory for a little while. I've definitely done some weird ones. Um, but some of the most fun ones have been at artistic places. Like when I was a guard, a museum guard at the museum of modern art was oh, cool. actually a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I did. I did the catering all over, like, uh, you know, we were doing them all over the city, doing them all around uh, for all the people in the Hamptons for their summer stuff and just grinding it out, man. That was always a tough job. Yeah. My last question for you is, knowing what you know today, if you ran into a younger Kevin Allison and walked in and asked you for advice, what advice would you give a younger you today? Oh, that's fabulous. It would be that after the state broke up, uh, I would give the advice to jump into classes because I think, you know, right after the state broke up is when UCB started. And that would have been a great time for me to start trying doing comedy in different ways. Like, like the state was convinced that sketch comedy was the ultimate kind of comedy. And we, we were often poo-pooing stand-up comedy or improv or whatever it might be. And the truth is, or storytelling, whatever it might be, the truth is trying different things throughout your career is a really good idea because you might learn, you, you might not be, you might not decide, oh, I am a storyteller. But if you try storytelling a few times, you might learn some things that will help you with whatever else you're doing, you know? So if after the state broke up, if I had been like, humble and been like, you know what, I should go right back to being a student of creative things and start taking classes in improv and maybe some stand up and maybe some storytelling uh, and, and just start like meeting a lot of new people and keep putting myself out there uh, rather than like staying at home, having stage fright, thinking, oh my gosh, who, who, you know, if I had just put myself out there a lot more and faced the fear and faced the social anxiety and just made sure that after the state broke up, I was getting up on stages, whether or not they were in classes or actual stages on a regular basis, I think that my late 20s and 30s would have been quite different, you know? Uh, I kind of let fear shoot myself in the foot for too many years after the state broke up. So I would, I would say to myself, look, it's all about just doing it. Just knowing, okay, I'm nervous about this, but keep showing up and keep trying different things. I love that. I think that's very wise advice. And I think a lot of people are going to take something from that. I appreciate you sharing it. Awesome. 
So what can people um, do to get in touch with you, to find you, to, to, to see the Rich Show, um, keep in touch with what's going on with your book, with the state, with the new version, I guess, which is going to be called Real. Um, obviously, I'll put the show notes and things like that in there so people can just jump on and link to them. But talk a little bit about how people can find you and how they can follow you. Absolutely. You can find the Risk Podcast anywhere you can find audio podcasts, but you can also find our website at risk-show.com. And then on all the socials on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, we're at Risk Show. And then on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at the Kevin Allison. Oh, I also do uh, cameo stuff. Those those little videos that you make for people. That's at cameo.com slash the Kevin Allison. Um, yeah, and the Risk book, which is some of our best stories that we've ever had on Risk, but in essay form, that can be found on Amazon or wherever you get books. And I think uh, I think that's about it. Yeah, real is not out yet. So unfortunately, I can't have. Uh, point anywhere on where to go for that yet <laughs> fair enough I, I assume on all those social media channels when you can they'll be able to see the you got it awesome okay any any closing closing thoughts today no i i, I really enjoyed this this was super fun Thanks. I can't thank you enough for doing this again. I've been a big fan of yours for a very long time. It's very nice of you and generous of you to give me your time and let me interview you. I had a blast. This was a, a huge deal for me. So thank you very much. Uh, Kevin Allison, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for your time. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Ever wanted to play the drums or do you want to get your kids some drum lessons to burn some of that energy while they are all locked up? Take advantage of a free drum lesson with one of the tri-state area's most respected drummers, Dan LaMagna. Dan LaMagna has played in such bands as Crown of Thorns, Suicide City, Biohazard, The Real Mackenzies, Sworn Enemy, The Walls of Jericho. He has played all over the world and he is also endorsed by such companies as DW, Vader, and Sabian. Dan has taught tons of people from all different age groups and all different music styles. He can teach adults, kids, advanced, beginner, any types of styles from metal, all different types of percussion, whatever style you want. Get a free drum lesson today from Dan. All you need to do is text the word drummer, D-R-U-M-M-E-R, to the number 833-482-0167. Again, text drummer to 833-482-0167 for your free drum lesson.